Hello, I'm Sam Amon, your non-binary host, and this is the 44th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be talking about literary giant and influential statesman Abdulraf Fitrat. making history segment. This is going to be U.S. focused because it is two weeks till our midterms, and at this point, we're going to fall apart faster than the U.K. is. So the midterms is two weeks away. Have you voted yet? Do you have a voting plan? Have you checked your voter registration information? If you're in Chicago, early voting has already started, and the last day to request a mail-in ballot is November 3rd. There's also still time to register to vote, and you can check your own registration information on Illinois' government website. The Republicans are passing several bills to restrict how people can vote, and that fascist governor in Florida is sending police to arrest people for false claims of voter fraud. This is illegal. They cannot do this. Technically. There are plenty of people like Mark Ilias who are fighting these, these efforts in court, but you can help combat voter intimidation by reporting it. There are two hotlines you can call if you experience voter intimidation or if you witness voter intimidation. The first hotline is the Election Protection Hotline, and the phone number is 1-866-687-8683. And the second hotline is the U.S. Department of Justice Voting Rights, which is 1-800-253-3931. You can also uh, try to find a poll worker or an election judge who is managing the poll. However, there's a little caveat with that because the Republicans are having their own MAGNA fascists volunteer as poll, worker, poll workers in certain locations so they can try and interrupt the voting process. And this isn't to make you paranoid. This isn't for you not to trust your poll workers. This is just so you're aware, first off, of what happens if you go to a poll to vote and you experience this. Um, two, but to also stress the seriousness of the situation the U.S. is currently in. The fascists are out, they are open about being fascist, and they are going to try and prevent people, especially people of color, from voting. And we need to do our part, we as like white people, need to do our part to fight that. Because the people of color are already doing everything they can, to be quite frank. So what does a poll worker do? A poll worker helps manage the polling location. They cannot enter the enclosed space, which is the area that contains the voting machines, the voting polls. They cannot stand behind you as you vote. They cannot interfere with how you're voting, and they cannot record how you vote. And they cannot prevent you from voting if you are a registered voter. If they try to tell you, you know, you're not on our list, you can ask them to double-check their list, you can ask them to check any supplementary list they have of voters. If they, You ask them if they have access to the statewide database and check there. Make sure you are at the correct polling location, and if they still try to prevent you from voting, then call one of those hotline numbers. The Election Protection Hotline, which again is 1-866-687-8683, um, basically 1-866-R-VOTE, they can help you um, verify your registration information. That's what they're there for. So you've already voted, you already got all your friends to vote, but you still want to help. Well, you can help uh, by participating in canvassing, phone banking, or text banking. We've got two weeks left. There's plenty of time to get people off to the polls. If you're in the Chicago area, Indivisible Chicago has a number of opportunities within the next two weeks to canvas for Lauren Underwood in Illinois, 
Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin and Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmore, who, by the way, terrifies fascists so much they tried to kidnap her in 2020. Check out their Twitter and Facebook pages to get specifics about the events. And I've talked about this before, about how voting isn't going to solve all the problems, and I owe the Democrats nothing, and I'm annoyed at them, and, you know, there's like a million reasons not to vote, and I understand those reasons. But I will say that we need to vote in this midterm, just like we needed to vote in the last election. I don't think that because we voted in the presidential election last year and not everything's magically better means we don't vote this year. That's not how it works. We need to vote because the Republicans are threatening to take away Social Security and Medicare if they win the House and Senate. They're threatening to go after Democrat officials in the tit-for-tat type manner because we're going after Trump because obviously Trump did nothing wrong. They're threatening to stop funding Ukraine because they're also Russian agents. (laughs) The Republicans got a lot going on. They're fascists. They're Russian agents. There's a lot of reasons to vote against them. I mean, they're already trying to outlaw the existence of trans people and queer people. They're already stripping anyone of a uterus of their rights, and they want to end fair and free elections. The Republicans are not hiding who they are. And if you can't believe that the United States has a mainstream fascist party, then you're not listening to the Republicans' own rhetoric. That is who they are. They revealed their true nature. This isn't a normal midterm. This is a chance to vote against fascism. This is one of our many chances to vote against fascism. Elections won't eradicate fascism, but it's literally the bare minimum we can do. So please vote, and then show up in the streets, show up in the courtrooms, show up at your elected officials' offices, and pressure them to take the fascist threat seriously, and finally take the steps to create a truly equal democracy. And now, time to discuss how Abdurah Fitrat helped create the modern states of Central Asia. At first glance, one may wonder why a podcast about asymmetrical warfare and colonial history is talking about a writer and a poet. There are two reasons. The primary reason is a personal one. Abdurah Fitrat, along with Abdullah Kodiri and Chopin, who we'll talk about in the upcoming episode, a sparked my interest in Central Asian history. Like, they're literally the reason why this podcast was created. And also because of my interest in Central Asian history, I was able to work with the Great War Channel on YouTube, and they're amazing. And that wouldn't have happened if I didn't somewhat randomly find out about the Jadids and, and find out about Abdullah Fitrat and the others. The academic reason is that, similar to Tular Rishkulov, Fitchat in particular was instrumental in crafting the modern states and identities of Central Asia, and slash or are the most recognizable faces of Stalinistic repression in Central Asia. Um, especially since the wall fell, a lot of these writers, a lot of the Jadids are being rediscovered, and their place in Central Asian history is being discussed, and Fitchat is one of these people that's being resurrected. Additionally, Fitchat, he's not only a literary giant, and mentor to many Jadids, he is instrumental in crafting the modern state of Uzbekistan. And so that's why we're going to talk about him today. Part 1. Before the Russian Revolution. Fitchat was born to a prosperous merchant family in Bukhara in 1886, where he received an education in a madrasa before traveling to Istanbul to further his education. He spent four years in Istanbul and was heavily influenced and inspired by various Turkic thinkers and the works of the Young Turks. Several of his pieces were printed in the newspaper Hitmet, and some of his earlier works, such as A Debate Between a Bukharan Professor and a European on the Subjects of New Schools and Tales of an Indian Traveler, involved an outsider looking in on Bukharan society and commenting on its many failures. In these works, Fitchat would argue for the need of, of an emir who actually cared for his subjects and the importance of modern education, public health care, and the neutralization of the ulama, who he said were, quote, the reason for the extinction of your nation, 
And the quote is from Abdul Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. The one thing I want to caveat here, especially with Fitrat, because Fitrat does have a bit of a reputation in terms of his relationship with Islam and communism, none of the Jadids are secular modernizers. And we've talked about this a lot, and I just want to re-emphasize it here as we talked about Fitrat. Their goals were not to create a non-religious society or a non-Islamic society. That's actually why they get in trouble with the Bolsheviks. Their goal was, was to address a lot of antiquated systems in their society and to reassess how Islam was being taught. And so when he and like Qadiri, for example, attacked the ulama, it's not, we shouldn't have Islam. It's more of like, these people are, these figures are not doing their job. They're not putting the people's needs or even Islam's needs first. And so I, I want to clarify that because we're going to get into a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit about Fitrat's evolution in terms of his relationship with um, Islam and the ulama and even the emir. World War I forced Fitrat to return to Bukhara, where he continued to push for the re recreation of Bukharan society and pressured the emir to listen to the Jadids and other modernizers before it was too late. The emir, however, was content with maintaining the status quo even after the Tsarist Russian Empire fell, and we've talked about that in our other episodes. For his part, Fitrat was distraught when the Bolsheviks took over, claiming, quote, Russia has seen disaster upon disaster since the February transformation, and now a new calamity has raised its head, that of the Bolsheviks. A quote is from Adib Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. He may have hated the Bolsheviks, but he and other Bukharan Jadids were more than willing to take advantage of the disintegration of Tsarist Russia to implement changes in Bukhara. And we've talked a little bit about this in our other episodes, but for Fitrat in particular, by 1917, he still believes in the emir, um, but the caveat is that the emir is a servant to the nation, not the other way around. He, along with other Bukharan Jadids, provided the emir with a list of reforms that they believed was needed to modernize Bukhara. The emir strung them along before eventually siding with the ulama and conservative merchants, and ultimately Fitrat has to leave. After they failed to implement reforms in Bukhara, Fitrat took his anger out on the emir and the ulama. He claimed that the emir was a traitor to his own people, and that, quote, the cause of the descent of the Muslim world into such dark days are the tyrannical kings, are poets who heaped false praise on them, and are eshans and mullahs who sold our faith. Quote is from Abdib Khalid, making Uzbekistan. Fitrat was most frustrated by the lack of urgency in reforming Bukharan society and the contentment with the status quo amongst the Bukharan political, religious, and economic leaders. Looking back in 1920, Fitrat would write, quote, Many among us say rapid change in methods of education, in language, in orth orthography, or in the position of women is against public opinion and creates discord among Muslims. We need to enter into such reforms gradually. The problem is that the thing called public opinion does not exist among us. We have a general majority, but it has no opinion. There's not a thought, not a word, that emerges from their own minds. The thoughts that our majority has today are not its own, but only the thoughts of some imam or atun. Given all this, no good can come from the gradualness. Quote is from Adib Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. Part 2. The Fall of the Bukharan Amir when Fitrat fled to Samarkand in August 1917, he became the editor for the newspaper Hurriyat. 
joined the young Bukharans, which were the Bukharan Jadids repackaging themselves, switched from writing in Persian to Uzbek, and began to embrace revolutionary change instead of gradual social change the Jadids once championed. And the quote we just heard kind of explains that evolution in his thinking. His thinking about Turkestan and Bukhara's future and the influences they should pull from also changed. Before 1917, he was a champion for Turkish and even British influence in the Jadid's efforts to modernize Bukhara. If you remember, one of his first publications was called Debate Between a Bukharan Professor and a European on the Subject of New Schools. And that European is a British person. However, after the Ottoman Empire shattered and the British carved up the Ottomans' empire amongst themselves and the French and the Tsarist Russia, Fitchat violently turned against any admiration he had for England. Between 1919 and 1920, he wrote that driving in England out of India was, quote, as great a duty as saving the pages of the Quran from being trampled by an animal, a worry as great as that of driving a pig out of the mosque. Again, quote is from Adi Khalid's Making Uzbekistan. And what's also interesting, if we think about, if we think back on our episode about Indian revolutionaries in Turkestan, it would be around this time. So Fitrat is in conversations with some of these Indian revolutionaries, and that may also be why he kind of hooks onto that as being a super important thing, um, which also, you know, coincides with the Bolsheviks' plans to spread communism east, because they're not doing so well spreading it westward. So a lot of these interests are aligning, even though they're coming from different perspectives. He actually wrote two anti-colonial plays between 1917 and 1920. The first one is called True Love, and the other one is Indian Revolutionaries. In True Love, Nuruddin, an Indian revolutionary poet, and Zulaka, his beloved, are murdered by the British police and a jealous rival for Zulaka's affections. In Indian Revolutionaries, Dunava's who loves Rahim Basht, is arrested by the police, and Rahim joins a revolutionary group in the Afghan frontier to rescue her. Things end tragically, and everyone dies. Um, Fitchat believed that in England, who were, you know, who were busy solidifying their hold on India and struggling to prevent Afghanistan's own independence, was the true external enemy, while the ulama and emir remained the true internal enemy. This evolution in his thinking pushed him towards finding common cause with the Bolsheviks, and he left for Kashtan in 1918. When he arrived, he styled himself as a representative of the Bukharan people and worked closely with the Soviets in Kashtan. However, the young Bukharans had to compete with the newly created Bukharan Communist Party for the Soviets' attention and support. They were absolute rivals, and eventually the Red Army General Mikhail Frenza has to force them to merge into one communist party, and then they focus their efforts on generating support for his invasion of Bukhara. The merge did little to make the two groups like each other, and the young Bukharans remained disconnected from communist thinking. Frenzo would overthrow the Bukharan Amir in the fall of 1920 and create the Bukharan People's Soviet Republic. Several Jadids, including Fitchat, would serve in its government. And we've talked about the fall of Bukhara in one of our previous episodes. Part 3. Running a New Soviet Republic Fitchat served in several cabinet positions, including Minister for Foreign Affairs, Education, WAFT Management, and Chairman of the National Economic Council, with his signature appearing on the banknotes of the Republic. He also oversaw the collection and survey of manuscript collections that could be found in the city. His goal was to create a cultural legacy for Bukhara. Fitchat and the other Jadids used their new power to attack old enemies such as, ulama, such as the ulama. 
They had some killed, put others to work, and took their property and wealth when they could. The most complicated problem for Fitchrat and the Bukharan Soviet Republic was the issue of Wak Met property, which is land endowed by wealthy Muslims for religious purposes and were a key source of power for the ulama. Under Fitchrat's reign, the Wak remained exempt from taxation and all benefits remained with the mosque, but the distribution and spending of those benefits fell under the directorate's supervision. A lot of this wealth was used to rebuild new method schools, so schools that followed the Jadid method of, school, of teaching, madrasas, orphanages, and funded the publication of newspapers, magazines, and useful books. This allowed the government to control who taught at the new method schools and madrasas and pushed through Jadid-type educational reform they'd been championing for at least a decade. However, Fitchrat's greatest contribution while as minister was his language and cultural reform. Part 3a. Recreating a language and state identity. As we mentioned, Fitchrat stopped writing in Persian in 1917 and wrote in Uzbek instead. When he became a cabinet minister, he also made Uzbek the state language for the Bukharan Soviet Republic. The reason he chose Uzbek instead of Persian is because he is a proponent of Chadataism. Chadataism argues that Central Asia was the cradle of the Turkic peoples and its people were Turkic people. And the only way to make progress was to reclaim this national authenticity. This also meant elevating the lights of Uyghurs, Genghis, Timur, and Uludbek as Turkic heroes. This left no room for people who claimed a Persianate heritage like the Tajiks or the Kazakh and Kyrgyz histories and national heroes. Clearly, this was a recipe for disaster, if one was concerned about uniting the region. Poor Rizkulov put together an alliance of Kazakh and Uzbek intellectual leaders to avoid, to avoid a schism, but it fell apart when he was forced out of the region, and the intellectuals went their own way. This nationalization of local identity would contribute to the eventual creation of the modern Central Asian states, which we'll talk about in an upcoming episode. Coming from a Chadatai perspective, Fitchat worked hard to modernize the Uzbek language, basically recreating it from scratch. He, his, his goal was threefold. One, create an Uzbek language whose literary quality wasn't determined by its degree of Arabicness. Two, create an Uzbek language that had its own rules and didn't borrow from other languages. Three, create an Uzbek language that had more indigenous terms than Persian or Arabic terms. And even though I don't speak Uzbek, this seems a little bit like trying to purge English of the English language of all French influences, but happy for someone to tell me why that is why my opinion is wrong. Um, he even created a cultural organization called Chadatai Conversation, which focused on collecting Turkic works used in Turkestan to rejuvenate the Turkic language and enrich its vocabulary and literature. When he wasn't busy rewriting an entire language and updating spelling conventions, he was reforming poetry to better utilize the Turkic language. Chopin would pick up this task and completely revolutionize poetry, which also may be why Fitchat gave him the name of Chopin, which means star, or bright star, I think. Fitchat was trying to prove that the Uzbeks had a language and history of their own, that they weren't a mismatched people who needed other influences to be creative or to contribute to society. This may seem a little icky, I think might be the word. Um, because basically what he's doing is that he's saying this is what makes you an Uzbek. If you don't have these qualities, then you're not an Uzbek. Which is kind of the first step of nationalism, right? I forgot. I can't remember if I read it in a book or Twitter or if I heard it in conversation with a professor, but someone told me that the first step of creating a nation is defining who is not part of that nation. And that's what Fitchat is doing here. 
he is trying to stake a claim to a certain identity that he can then use to create a society that he thinks needs to be created. And this is, you know, an extreme position to have from where he was, you know, 1916, 1917, before the revolution, but when he was just asking for cultural reforms. The war and revolution had stripped the region of Tsarist and Emirate power, and this created a vortex or a void that the Bolsheviks, the Bosmachi, the Dadids, and others were trying to fill. And Fitchat believed that a Turkic identity was the solution, even if it meant other peoples of the regions were left out in the cold. And while it certainly did leave certain identities out, you can also see it as an attempt to claim an autonomy that the Bolsheviks were not willing to grant. And we'll talk more about this in an upcoming episode because this, this flows a little bit more into like why the modern states were created and how. But by you know, 1920s, the Basmachi are being defeated. Enver Pasha comes, there's like a bright, you know, a brief bump in Basmachi activity and then he dies and then they kind of just disappear for a little bit. All the other enemies are gone. The emirs are gone. You know, the Musburo are gone. The Bolsheviks are able to consolidate power and the people who now run the Bukharan People's Soviet Republic are the indigenous leaders that the Bolsheviks put into power. And so there is, I think, this struggle between the indigenous leaders and the Bolsheviks and this attempt to create an identity that has always been here right? There's an authenticity to it, but there's also a longevity to it, right? Fitchat can look at Timur and say, like, no, he's been our national hero. We've always been here. This has always been our home. This has always been our land. This has always been our language. You can't take that from us. You can't come in and say, oh, we're going to give you a solution based on Marx when we already have a solution that come, that has deep roots in this region. So part of it, I think, is just defining what is not a Uzbek. And just trying to figure out what this new society looks like. And another part that I think is driving him is this idea of the Bolsheviks coming in and saying, okay, we're communists, we're going to organize a society based on communist principles. And everyone else saying that that doesn't apply to us because we didn't have, we don't have this industrial society that you need for communist principles. These are the actual concerns we have. And you're coming from a Russian perspective where we have this perspective and the Uzbek perspective or the Tajik perspective. And it's, it's what got to our Ristolov kicked out of the Musbaro and the area in the first place. He went to Lenin and he was saying, the solutions that you are prescribing aren't working. Like, these are the actual problems. And Lenin was like, well, yeah, well, that's too bad. We're going to do it the communist way. Um, and so I think what we're seeing here a little bit is that argument continued, but this time it's Fitchat and other indigenous leaders. He is supported by other leaders at this point, um, trying to state a claim to his identity and try and communicate it to, with the Bolsheviks at first and then that he goes from trying to communicate to them to just trying to placate them as we'll talk about in the next section part four nationalism versus communism Fitzrat's creation of a national identity was supported by other leaders of the Bukharan republic who had little interest in the bolshevik concept of communism or a federated state the indigenous leaders of the Bukharan republic wanted to create a centralized modern state with full sovereignty and membership in the world order they wanted to keep local control of the, of the region's resources so they could grow their own internal economy as opposed to contributing to the bigger Soviet economy. And we talked about that a little bit in the Tuar episode, actually, because he was sending letters to Moscow about the cotton initiative. So again, we're seeing these struggles repeated by different indigenous leaders in the, in the region. 
the leaders of the Bukharan Republic wanted to fight ignorance, quote-unquote, championed by the ulama by bringing Muslim institutions and Islamic activity under state control, not to destroy it. They wanted to regulate it, um, which, of course, is, runs counter to the Soviet belief that religion was the opium for the masses and needed to be eradicated. And they were creating a bureaucratic system similar to the one championed by the Young Turks. They also wanted to have freedom to control their own foreign policy and even sent overtures to the new states of Turkey and Afghanistan. And we've talked about Afghanistan's interesting position, basically being in a rock and hard place between Russia, the Soviet Union, England, and then these republics, these Central Asian republics, in our episode about the Basmachi. And I think we'll go into it a little bit more. I do want to do an episode on Afghanistan at some point. So these goals, though, contradicted with all of the Soviets' goals. So it's not what the Soviets wanted. And since the Soviets had the Red Army on their side, they had all the military power, it was easy to bring the Bukharan Republic to heel. And so you do have this back and forth and these testing of, you know, can I get away with this? Can I not get away with this on the Bukharan Republic side? And eventually the Red Army and the Soviets, they flex their muscles and they demand the dismissal of foreign ministers, including Fitchat, and exile them from Bukhara. They were charged with abuse of power, corruption and incompetence, and public drunkenness. This shattered the Republic's attempts to exert its independence and began a very dark period in Fitchat's life. Part 5. Life in Exile After being exiled in 1923, Fitchat traveled to Moscow where he seemingly had a crisis of faith. Since I'm not a Muslim myself, I won't be arrogant enough to try and analyze his relationship with Islam. Um, I will just say that from 1923 onward, Fitchat wrote several pieces that dealt with core Islamic principles that suggest that he was trying to figure out, you know, I, I think he was just having a crisis because he just got kicked out of Bukhara, the Soviets were proving to not be the ideal partners. I think the attacks against him were just starting or they're going to start a year from now. He's just not in a good place. Um, and I think obviously that's going to affect your relationship with any religion you have. And so these pieces, I think, are just him chronicling the struggle that he's having. But they're really interesting. I personally would love to read all of them. I just need to learn either Uzbek or Persian. I don't know if they would have been published in Russian. Maybe. So he wrote these theses. Uh, some, of these, some of the publications include The Day of Judgment, in which a Jadi experiences the Islamic version of Judgment Day, ends up in paradise, and then returns to Earth because paradise was boring. Um, the other one is Satan's Revolt Against God, which is a Milton-esque take on Satan's fall from grace, and something I desperately want to read. It, it sounds amazing. I'm just going to say that. Um, and a rather unflattering story about Muhammad's, the Prophet Muhammad's marriage to his son's recently divorced wife. In terms of his own beliefs, Fitchat would claim, quote, I was a proponent of religious reform, given over to the idea of separating religion from superstition. Precisely this path from religious reform brought me to irreligion. I saw that nothing remained of religion once it was separated from superstition. I came to believe that religion and science did never coexist, and therefore I left religion and began to spread ideas against religion. My irreligion is well known to all the Uzbeks and Tajiks. This fact cannot be denied. And this quote is from Adi Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. However, that statement was made during the height of his persecution, when communists and fellow Jadids were attacking him for being anti-communist, being nationalist, being Islamic, all, you know, everything that was bad. 
in order to bolster their own communist credentials. So this statement could have been made to save his own life, or it could be a legitimate, a legitimate encapsulation of how he was feeling at the time. We'll never really know. In 1924, Fitchat will be joined in Moscow by Chopin, who went to study at the newly created Uzbek drama studio, and Podiri, who would be attending the Rusov Institute of Journalism. For his part, Fitchat taught where he could, and focused on writing about literature and literary criticism, and try to stay out of politics. He'd be allowed to return to Bukhara a year later, where he would face several attacks on himself, his communist credentials, and his life's work. Part 6, Attacked from All Sides The balance of power was shifting in Bukhara in 1924, with the Jadids growing increasingly isolated and unwanted, replaced by indigenous actors who had stronger communist credentials, although this didn't always protect them during Stalin's purges, he returned just as the internal divides were heating up, and he became a lightning rod for anyone who wanted to discredit the uh, leader of the Bukharan Republic, Fezula Hosev, who will get his own episode at some point. First, Fitchat was attacked for being a Chadatayist. His main accuser was Jalil Boybolotov, who was a Czechist assigned to tracking Fitchat since the early days of the Bukharan Soviet Republic. Boybolotov claimed that Chadatayism was a thin veil for pan-Turkism, pan-Islamism, and local nationalism, and that Fitchat was a Sufi, pan-Islamist, and pro-Emirate. Fitchat defended himself in the party's newspaper. He was still the Soviet's darling at this time, but his Chadatai project was stripped from the Sovietization of Central Asian states by the 1930s. And this is like the weird thing about the attacks, is because he'd be attacked, but he'd still be allowed to publish. Fezula, Josef, was able to use his political power to protect Fitchat for a while. And so he was able to work in academia for a while. He was publishing works. He even published some works in Russian. It's this weird limbo of, you know, you know the, the hammer's going to fall or the other shoe's going to drop, but you just don't know when. And the system gives you enough hope that maybe, you know, if I weather the storm, I weather these attacks and I prove that, no, I'm really dedicated to this project of communism or state building in Central Asia then I can survive this, right? I just need to find the right combination of words and I'll be okay. And that has, that's what the um, Bukharan Republic had done for a while with the Soviets. And we'll get into that in another episode. But there was this double speak of whenever they dealt with the Soviets, they'd speak communist. And then whenever they were dealing with themselves and actually running the region, they would follow the principles that they understood. And so I think Fitchat was trying to find this, this um, the right language and, you know, others had done that too. Chopin and Quadiri in their writings, they were trying to find a way to stay in favor. And it just, it was being proved impossible. By 1937, the communists felt strong enough in Central Asia to go after the Dadids, the Alash Orda, and old politicians in Central Asia. Vezula Josef fell first, arrested in July 1937. Chopin was arrested on July 13th, 1937. And Fitchat was arrested July 21st, 1937. Kordiri would be arrested um, at the end of the year. They were all accused of belonging to a secret society, Mili Itad, which we'll discuss in an upcoming episode. The Soviets claimed that the society's goal was to break away from the Soviet Union and undermine communism. During his interrogation, Fitchak quote-unquote confessed to being the leader and being recruited to the organization by Fezula. He also confessed to helping organize the Basmachi to fight the Soviets and establish an independent bourgeoisie nationalist state. Fitchat, Chopin, and Kodiri and other Jadids were executed on October 4th, 1938, the same day the Supreme Military Court of the USSR in Kashtan convened to announce the sentence. Do you, 
I don't know if it's sad or comforting that the uh, Soviet justice system is as corrupt as the U.S. justice system. Fitchrat's work was banned by the Soviet Union. It was not allowed to be discussed until Glasnost. He wasn't completely rehabilitated until after the Soviet Union fell. As we have seen in this episode, Fitchrat was a very fascinating person who was very busy um, during the Russian Civil Wars and the creation of the Central Asian States. And he seems to be a bit of a firebrand and sarcastic and someone who was not afraid of speaking his mind until maybe it was too late. I have yet to find any of his work translated into English. Um, I have found work by Chopin and I found work by Kodiri. I haven't found anything by Fitchrat yet and maybe I'm just looking at the wrong places, but I would love to read his work someday. I think I think he's really interesting. The, some of the plays I had mentioned, you know, Adventures of an Indian Traveler, Satan's Revolt Against God, um, Judgment Day, they all sound really, really fascinating and provide an interesting perspective of what some 20th century Muslims in a Soviet sphere were going going through in terms of what was happening to their own nations and what was happening to their religion. So I think it's just it'd just be fascinating to translate and read. He is a giant when it comes to determining what it means to be an Uzbek and in Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan, the idea of Chadatayism eventually does take hold in Central Asia, I think in the 1930s and 1940s. And so the project that he dedicated his life to does get resurrected and becomes kind of part of the Uzbekistan DNA. Um, and the modern Uzbek language, you know, it was a lot to Fitchrat's innovations and work. And the poetry as well, whether you're reading Fitchrat's poetry or you're reading Chopin's poetry, Chopin was a, a follower of Fitchrat and a friend of Fitchrat's. And so he is a very key figure, I think, in understanding Uzbekistan and the region. And he's a key figure like Tular Vizkolov, um, like Faisullah Hosev, like Alakan, Bukihanov. There are people that have been erased, particularly from Western history. So I think that's why Fitchrat is important to discuss, even though he doesn't technically fit within our definition of asymmetrical warfare. Asymmetrical warfare is more than what's on the battlefield. Asymmetrical warfare is also what's happening in the background and what's happening politically and what's happening culturally. I think Fitchat fits in that category because we know one of the reasons why the Basmachi failed is because they didn't have a political solution. They weren't offering the people anything in terms of like, how are we going to feed you? What does your government going to look like? You know, how do we organize a government? How do we organize culture? What does a culture look like? Where does religion fit in? Right? They didn't have any of those solutions. Fitchrat and the Jadids did, and whether it was well-liked or not is a different debate. They were at least offering something, and the Soviets were able to build on what they were offering to then eventually create the uh, the Soviet republics. Another reason why I think Fitchrat is important to talk about in the, concept, in the context of asymmetrical warfare is Fitchrat and the other Jadids are a great example of how a state power trying to fight a local insurgency treats its local allies. I mean, it's really easy to dogpile on the Soviets and the terrible way that they treated the indigenous leaders of Central Asia, and we should, because it is terrible, and they killed a lot of really innovative people, um, and they erased them for a very long time, and they erased their works for a very long time, and they took that away from the region. 
So definitely, definitely dogpile on them. But also, we should be taking this and, look, and, and looking at how the British has treated indigenous peoples when they were fighting insurgencies. How was the U.S.? Like, you know, Af- Iraq and Afghanistan are perfect examples of the U.S. betraying, like, you know, the U.S. is entering the region. They don't understand relying on very brave people in the region and then just abandoning them or just getting them killed. So this is like a part of the asymmetric warfare that maybe isn't discussed as often, I feel like. counterinsurgencies to be successful need local actors and if you treat the local actors like crap then um either your counterinsurgency is going to fail or you kind of end up in this situation where your local leaders are fed up with you and it's kind of depends on the type of state um but you know either you can be at the u.s and just leave after decades of ruining the region or you can be at the soviets and just murder them all um and then turn that state into a cotton factory agricultural source thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode you can listen to our full catalog on spotify itunes and our website www.samswarroom.com please join our patreon to support our research and project and future projects until next time wash your hands practice social distancing and stay safe